It is uh, Black History Month, in case you didn't know. I see my brother uh, Giovanni here and his wife with beautiful African garb. It warms my heart to see that. But I also have fond memories as a little boy growing up on the south side of Chicago in, a, in, a, in an exclusively African-American community, went to schools, and my, 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 my education in schools was a very Afrocentric education. And I talked to many of my friends uh, as I got older who said that they didn't learn very much black history in their schools, but that wasn't true of us. We had posters everywhere. We had plays and assemblies. And I, I grew up really appreciating the really rich heritage African-American people in this country, and not just the heritage, but their contribution uh, to our enjoying the freedoms uh, and some of the equality that we enjoy today. Now, we have a long way to go still, but I am struck by the contributions of brave and courageous men and women like Dr. Martin Luther King, Rosa Parks. We learned about people in the arts like Paul Lawrence Dunbar, and it is a very rich heritage of African American history. Recently, uh, I've come to know, learn a little bit about one of the, the I won't say unsung, but lesser known uh, African American civil rights figures, one John Lewis. John Ru Lewis is a U.S. representative for Georgia's 5th District, and he's held that seat since 1987. And John Lewis is one of the original freedom riders. Uh, John Lewis was one of the, I don't say understudies, but he was mentored by Dr. Martin Luther King uh, Jr., and he's one of the uh, key figures in the famous nonviolent movement of the civil rights era that sought through nonviolent means to secure freedoms uh, for and equality and equal access to things for African-American people in the 60s and in the 70s. And in an interview with CNN about an exhibit, exhibit honoring his life at the National Center for Civil Rights and Human Rights, John Lewis said that as a boy growing up in Alabama, he remembered uh, noticing these signs that would say whites only or colored, noticing water fountains that he couldn't drink from. He'd ask his parents often about these signs that were designated for whites only or colored only that didn't quite sit right with him. And he remembered his parents saying, John, that's just the way it is. He remembered his pain saying, John, listen, whatever you do, son, don't get in the way. It's dangerous. Don't get into trouble. But John, young John, was absorbing the words of civil rights activists and leaders, and he began hanging out with troublemakers like Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., John Lewis says this, Dr. King and Rosa Parks inspired me to actually get into trouble against his parents' advice, but to get into what he calls good trouble. And maybe, just maybe, he says, we'll raise up a new generation of young people that will get in trouble, good trouble, necessary trouble, to make our country and to make our world a better place. And I'll tell you, more than ever, I am inspired by the civil rights movement and its leaders because filled with people who could not wait, who would not wait for equality and freedom. And when you look at the unsterilized versions of their stories, people were beaten, bloodied, many died, they sacrificed a lot. And I shudder to think what my life would be like as a 37-year-old black man in America were it not for men and women like John Lewis 
like Dr. King, like Rosa Parks, who decided not to play it safe, but instead to get into trouble, the good, kind trouble. I can't shake this concept of good trouble these days. I can't help but consider the kingdom implications of this concept of good trouble. And on this Black History Month, as we celebrate those who gave their lives and sacrificed a lot, many of them who sacrificed for dreams and liberties and freedoms that they never themselves got to taste, I think that God might want us to consider what it might mean for us, kingdom people or those uh, seeking to be kingdom people, what it might mean for us to get into some good trouble. You probably already know by now the the name of this series that we're going to start this morning. I'm starting a brand new series that I'm simply calling Good, Good Trouble. You probably realize this by now that life with Jesus is no cakewalk. It is not, by the way, a life of comfort and ease. It is not a preference-driven life. It's a life built around this notion that we are not here to be served, but rather we're here to serve and lay our life down for others, namely God and other people. If you look at the very center of who we're supposed to be and what we're supposed to be as humans on this earth, our very purpose is to serve God and others, to lay our life down for God and to lay our life down for others. This life with Jesus is not a safe life. In fact, Jesus bids us to do what? To come and lay in a hammock? Sip lattes? No, he, he bids us to come and die. And so in the vineyard, as you probably heard before, we spell faith, particularly faith in Christ, R-I-S-K. We spell it risk because that is what Jesus is inviting us to. This is especially helpful and necessary to unpack from time to time because you could, as a 21st century Western suburban Christian, go your whole Christian life simply going with the flow. Your whole Christian life just blending in, not making any waves, not getting into any trouble, not taking any risk, standing up for nothing. And and, and I just might want to suggest this morning that Jesus might have more for us than that. That there's more to this life with Jesus, there's more to a life which is an invitation into the fray against the grain, a life of risk. I think that Jesus might have more for us than that. And so for the next few weeks, I want to spend some time talking about this whole concept of good trouble and the things that we're supposed to involve ourselves with and consider in order to get into good trouble. I want to begin this sermon series this week by talking about a subject that is common to many of us, but you may not have associated with a good kingdom reality, and that is the subject of anger. Somebody say anger. Anger is defined simply as having a strong feeling of or showing annoyance, displeasure, or hostility. And conventional wisdom tells us to stay away from anger. Don't get angry. We might have even mistakenly put anger uniformly in a sinful category. And while anger is the very start of many bad things... The anger often uh, sets at the root of the bad type of trouble that you don't want to get in. I find that anger is uniquely centered often in the center uh, of the good kind of trouble that we want to get into as risk takers, as kingdom people, 
as folks who are not called to go along with the status quo. And I simply want to urge us, if you're just looking for a title this morning, I want to urge us to, in the right way, get angry. To get angry. Some of you say, I got that covered. I came in, I woke up angry this morning. <laughs> Stay with me this morning. And I challenge you to get angry as we together learn what it looks like to get into good trouble. And so today we look at one of the chief troublemakers, and that is Jesus, right? Jesus was a bit of a troublemaker, but for all the right reasons. And we're going to look at the subject of anger and the life of Jesus from a passage of Scripture in John chapter 2. So would you turn to John chapter 2 uh, in, your, in your Bibles this morning if you have it? If you don't have a Bible, by the way, there should be some Bibles on the edges of some of those rows. Feel free to use that Bible and to turn to John 2 this morning. If you don't, by the way, have a Bible at home that you can understand, uh, feel free to take those Bibles as a gift from us to you. We'll also be projecting on the screens, um, and feel free also to follow along with us on your tablets or your phones. We're talking about good trouble, urging you to get angry, looking at John chapter 2, where you find that. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your word, and thank you so much for your truth. I pray that you would speak to us today. I pray that you would stir us, that you would challenge us this morning, that you would make us uncomfortable in all the right ways. And Father, may the heart that was in your son, Christ Jesus, be also in us. Father, may we grow uncomfortable with the things you're uncomfortable with, dissatisfied by the things that you are dissatisfied with. May we grow angry and indignant at the things you grow angry and indignant. What would you teach us today through your word? As always, Lord, I ask that you put power in these words you give me. Speak, move the preacher out of the way this morning so that your truth and your light might shine through. We ask all these things in Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. John chapter 2, I'll start at verse 13. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration, so Jesus went to Jerusalem. In the temple area, he saw merchants selling cattle, sheep, and doves for sacrifices. He also saw dealers at tables exchanging foreign money. Verse 15, Jesus made a whip from some ropes and chased them all out of the temple. He drove out the sheep and cattle, scattered the money changers, coins all over the floor, and turned over their tables. Then going over to the people who sold doves, he told them, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. Then his disciples remembered this prophecy from the scriptures. Passion for God's house will consume you. But the Jewish leaders demanded, what are you doing? If God gave you authority to do this, show us a miraculous sign to prove it. All right, Jesus replied, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. What, they exclaimed, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you can rebuild it in three days? But when Jesus said this temple, he meant his own body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remember he had said this, and they believed both the scriptures and what Jesus had said. I love this text because it paints for us a very interesting scene, right? We learn something about Jesus in this text that we may not learn or glean from other texts. It's an interesting scene. And this scene opens with Jesus going to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. If you didn't know already, Jesus was a Jewish man. And even though he had issues with religious folks and their man-made customs, Jesus himself was still a very devout Jew. 
And like all devout Jews, he went to the Jewish festivals. The three main ones, Pentecost, Tabernacles, and Passover, this particular story shows that Jesus went like a faithful Jew to the Passover celebration. And when he arrives, he sees something that seems to really set him off. And Jesus, in uncharacteristic fashion, seems to lose it. A Savior who always seems so calm and collected. Uh, in this particular episode of his life, in this particular story, Jesus seems almost unhinged. And it's worthwhile to ask and to hopefully answer why. After all, uh, from, from a casual viewpoint, it might seem like this is no way for a gentle Savior to behave. Or is it? Or is it? I think it's helpful and necessary for us to start with a basic understanding that Christ is eternally sinless and eternally righteous. He can't help but be that way. And if we understand that Christ is our gold standard for everything right, our eternal example, we must conclude from the very beginning that his actions were not inappropriate, that he wasn't unhinged, that he wasn't out of control, that he didn't, you know, dive into sin with this act. And so it's helpful in light of that to ask ourselves, well, what gives Jesus the right to do this? And how can I get in on fashioning whips turning over tables and driving people that make me mad out of the church. That, that needs some clarity, right? And so it's helpful for us to look at this as we uh, carefully examine the basis for Jesus' reaction and how this might apply to our life. Three things stand out. The first is when Jesus walks into the temple courts, he notices what I would just call a major violation. Something set him off. Verse 14 tells us what it is. In the temple area, he saw merchants selling cattle, sheep, and doves for sacrifices. He also saw dealers at tables exchanging foreign money. Uh, now, it may not automatically be obvious what's going on here, uh, but let me try to explain. So as these Jews would come from all over, and even Gentiles would come all over uh, from their distant lands to participate in these Passover celebrations, uh, part of these celebrations would require that you make some sacrifices, right? And many of those sacrifices included animals. And many of these people were not bringing these animals and these sacrifices from distant places because it would encumber the trip. So they would purchase those things when they got there. Uh, and typically in the temple courts that would be set up and people would essentially be selling the appropriate sacrifices. Maybe it's cattle, uh, maybe it's doves, maybe it's sheep, right? And there would also be money changers there because if you're coming from a distant place, you would essentially need to exchange the coins so that you might use uh, local money in order to purchase the things that you need. And so uh, on its face, this would seem like a ministry of convenience, Right? Like I say, hey, listen, let's help these guys out. Let's offer these items in the temple courts so it would be easy for them to go in and sacrifice. But it's human nature to get greedy, right? It's human nature to take a, a ministry of convenience and corrupt it and see how you can make some coin, right? It, it, it's, it's human nature to do that. And these religious people who, though they, you know, were 
practicing the customs and keeping the letters of the law. Their hearts were impure, and so they didn't think it inappropriate to inflate the prices of these goods that people needed to purchase. And these sheep and cattle and doves were being sold in the temple to these pilgrims who were come to worship at grossly inflated prices. And you can probably guess that the money changers weren't particularly fair in exchanging the coins. Basically, people were being exploited. People were being taken advantage of in God's house of all places. And so these people had a captive audience, so they can do it. It's kind of like being in an airport. You'd never pay $17 for a snicker until you go to the airport <laughs> or until you go to great America. You're just like, oh, $17, I guess that's what it costs. Captive audience, exploitation. And if you know anything about Jesus, this, like, set him off in the worst possible way. This was a major violation And Jesus reacts to this. And the way Jesus responds is the second thing I see to this text is Jesus gets angry. Jesus gets angry. Verse 15 tells us Jesus made a whip. This This is wild, right? He made a whip from some ropes and chased them out of the temple he drove out the sheep and cattle, scattered, and picture this in your mind, scattered the money changers, coins over the floor, <laughs> turned over tables, then going over to people who sold those. He got in their face and said, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. And some of our rowdier congregate, congregants here today are feeling you know, affirmed. They're saying, I knew it. I knew we can slap people. I knew we could turn over tables and fight and brawl. I knew it. I knew it. I like this preacher, right? We got to wrap some context around this because Jesus wasn't just doing this to just let off some steam. I've been a Christian nearly my whole life, and I have heard this passage be misused all the time. Um, I grew up in a particularly rough neighborhood. My parents, who were from the streets, who lived a life of crime before they met the Lord, started a church. And, and, and it seemed like in, in, a rough, in a rough area where we grew up, people were always looking for reasons to, like, affirm their aggression and anger. And they loved this text. <laughs> Jesus was a gangster. I knew it. And if somebody would try to file the hard edge off of somebody who was rough around the angels, a little too belligerent, a little too aggressive, a little too zealous, unconverted, they would go to John chapter 2 and talk about Jesus turning over tables and whipping people and throwing coins across the floor. But we see Jesus get angry. And this is curious because many of us, if we're honest, we put anger in a bad category, universally so. And some of us get angry all the time. And the anger that you experience feels naughty. It feels sinful. It feels inappropriate. And many, many times it is because if we're honest, when we get angry, it's not the good kind of anger. When we get angry, 
typically it's because somebody has upset us or somebody has violated me or somebody has disappointed me or somebody has hurt me or somebody has lied to me. I have been put out. I have been wronged. I have been misused. My time has been wasted. I have been violated. And typically, these extreme emotional reactions to my well-being and my comforts and my expectations will almost always land me on the wrong side of anger. But there is a particular unique strand of anger that is good anger, that is helpful anger, that is actually necessary if you, if you ever intend to get into the good kind of trouble that our heroes of the civil rights movement and, and our eternal Savior Jesus lean into, there's a particular strand of anger, and it's simply known as righteous anger. Righteous anger. That is, of course, to say that it's okay to get mad so long as you're getting mad for the right rings. It's okay to get angry. That anger fuels movements. It fuels and demands positive change. It is indignant when it sees injustice. It is intolerant of certain things, rightfully so, but there are distinguishing marks of righteous anger, the good kind of anger. And so I just want to run through real quick three marks of righteous anger. And righteous anger, first of all, is is typically a response to actual sin, right? Actual sin. It's not just somebody didn't do what you wanted them to do. Not that somebody didn't meet your expectations, that righteous anger, in order for it to be righteous, in order for it to be the good kind of anger, it has to be in response to an actual sin. And to take this deeper, we say the second mark of righteous anger is that it, it, it comes from a concern about an offense against God, and again, not just that somebody wronged you, not just somebody upset you or somebody didn't do what you wanted them to do, it, it is concern, a deep, principled concern that is anchored in God's law and his statutes and his precepts. It concerns an offense against holy God. The disciples notice this in verse 17. As soon as they see Jesus, like, getting crazy in the temples, fashioning a whip, driving away animals, tossing coins, getting in people's place, insisting that they get out of the temple courts, their disciples remember from the ancient scripture, verse 17, then his disciples remember this prophecy from the scriptures, passion for God's house will consume me. In other words, a passion for the things of God, this kingdom reality means that the things that God gets all juiced up about, I'm going to get juiced up about. The things that turn his stomach will turn my stomach. The things that, inter- that, that upset my justice sensibilities, that God upset God's sense of justice and righteousness will, will upset mine. Because I have a zeal for the things of God. I have a zeal for his house. I have a zeal for his principles. I want to align my worldview with his, align my emotions with his. And the things that upset him should upset me because I have a passion, a zeal for the things of God, and this is how you know you're on the right track toward having a thoroughly converted Christian mind, is that when you look in the pages of Scripture and you look to see what God gets angry about and what God delights, they will instinctively begin to delight you, instinctively begin to upset you 
and you begin to know that you're on your way toward a thoroughly converted Christian mind. Third mark of righteous anger is that your response displays Christian character. That your response displays Christian character. In other words, godly anger, righteous anger, does not react to sin with more sin. Right? Righteous anger does not react to being cursed out by cursing someone out. Righteous anger does not respond to mistreatment by mistreating others. And this is why I think our brothers and sisters who really leaned to, into this nonviolent uh, protest reality that, that really was a distinguishing mark of the civil rights movement, it, it was totally countercultural. And if you read the writings of King, Dr. King and others, King said, listen, as much, and I'm paraphrasing, as much as we want to punch somebody in the mouth when they pour milk on us as we're sitting in peacefully at the lunch counter just wanting to be served, as much as they curse us, we won't curse back. As much as they slap us in the face, we won't uh, slap them. And they spit in our face, we won't spit back because we cannot, in good conscience, return evil for evil. And it really was one of the things that turned the tide of the civil rights movement and, and gave national exposure to these issues because they saw a peaceful people, a righteous people, being beaten, attacked by dogs, assaulted, and they did not return that anger. They did not return that sin as much as they wanted to because one of the marks of righteous anger is that it displays Christian character even in the midst of being wronged, even in the midst of being sinned against. And I might argue that Jesus got right up to the edge fashioned a whip, didn't destroy anybody's animals, chased them out of the temple, though. Didn't grab any coins. <laughs> but he, he threw them about. Didn't harm anybody, but he got in their face and said, you will not do this in my father's house. Righteous anger. Righteous anger is, in a word, righteous. And Jesus is righteously angry because they brought this mess into his house. I believe Jesus is really angry because what he understands as kingdom people is that we're supposed to make it easy for people to worship and not harder. We're supposed to tear down walls and not build them. We're supposed to provide an easier means to get to God, to get to worship, and we are not, as the people of God, in the house of God, supposed to make that process harder. We should certainly not exploit for our own benefit the desire of those who wish to humbly worship. And interestingly enough, scholars believe that this was taking place in the Gentile court. And so that this was likely happening to non-Jews, which introduces another layer of injustice and discrimination and prejudice and exploitation because Jewish men and women who were supposed to be people of the light were exploiting their Gentile brothers, and Jesus would not have it. And so he got angry, righteously angry, 
And my question to you as I go, before I go on to my third point is, what do you get angry about? I mean, what do you get really angry, like fighting mad about? Like, what is it that you get angry about? And some of you, as you process that question, as you ask and answer it honestly, if you actually had to write it down and see in black and white what triggers you and what angers you and compare it to the things that God sees as important, justice, equality, level grounds, level playing fields, fair access, If you were to write your list of things that really get you angry, really set you off, many of us would be embarrassed. We'd be embarrassed. Up against what God counts as important, up against the real suffering and real injustice that happens every day in this country and around the world, like we'd be embarrassed to consider what we really get angry about. Like the Wi-Fi is slow. I'm about to set it off in here. Like this Uber Eats dude is like five minutes late and like my food, my fries are going to be cold. Like he's going to hear from me. I mean, nobody likes slow Wi-Fi. I'm not demonizing if you like. But I'm saying uh, up against your reaction to injustice, right? What do you get angry about? I'll leave you with that as I move on to my third and final point. Jesus sees a major violation. He responds to that with righteous anger. And then the third, like, inevitable thing happens is that Jesus gets into trouble. He gets into trouble. And might I add, good trouble. The kind of trouble that you want to get into. And you will find, as you begin to have the same heart that was in Christ Jesus in you, as you lean into the risks of Christian faith, as you decide, like John Lewis did, to get into good trouble, what you will find is if you're getting into good trouble and you start standing up for exploited and powerless people, when you start to stand for something unpopular, when you, 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 somebody's inevitably going to have a problem with it. And you might take the most righteous cause that seeks to give food to somebody who doesn't have food or voice to somebody who doesn't have voice or power to some, something that you, you shouldn't you know, have to defend. Something that just like humanity demands and insists on, seeing that would be like a no-brainer for especially Christians. Like if you start getting into good trouble, you can count on it that somebody's going to have a problem with it. Somebody's going to have an issue with it. And I can't happen. This harkens back to the civil rights era where you thought the church universal surely would surround Dr. King and the Freedom Riders. The civil rights movement is say, yes, justice now. There shouldn't be two separate water fountains. There should be, uh, you should be able to be tried by jury of your peers. You, of course you should be able to do this and that. Like, like that's no-brainer, right? But King was getting letters from preachers. If you ever read a letter from a Birmingham jail, that letter was to the preachers who insisted, King, wait, be patient. You're causing trouble. This isn't Christian. And King said, are you kidding me? You want to lecture me? Stand up for something. You're going to get in trouble. I'm not even talking. Don't even march anyplace. Don't even do anything radical. Just post something that's even remotely woke. 
you never knew your Uncle Willie, who's 96. You never even knew he had a Facebook account. But post something <laughs> that demands justice. And all of you will come out of the woodwork, misquoting scripture. And if they're not courageous enough, like they'll text you something. You know, I get texts all the time. Jesus gets in to trouble. Verse 18, but the Jewish leaders, after seeing all this, demand, what are you doing? If God gave you the authority to do this, show us a miraculous sign to prove it. Let's just talk about that what are you doing thing, right? Some people are doing wrong things and then the slightest bit of, of you know, pushback goes, awakens them to the reality that's wrong and they go, oh, you know what, you're right. We shouldn't be enriching ourselves in this Gentile court. We shouldn't be inflating the prices. You know what? I stand corrected. But these guys, they, they dig their heels in. What are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? Because at, 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 at the bottom of loads of injustice, loads of unrighteous exploitation and oppression, it, it's somebody's making a buck. Somebody's benefiting at the end of that. And if you ever seek to get into righteous trouble, somebody's going to be mad because it, it's going to impact the ill-gotten gain in their unrighteous way of life. Just budget for it. And they take us a bit further and say, who gave you the authority to do this? And if God gave you the authority to do this, show us a sign. They're furious with Jesus, and they challenge him. They challenge his authority to call them on their actions. And Jesus, of course, plays along because he's a troublemaker. Verse 19, he says, all right. Destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. What they exclaimed, that's taking 46 years to build this temple, and you can rebuild it in three days? But when Jesus said this temple, the scriptures tells us that he meant his own body. And these exploiters, these religious men and women, um, they were very spiritually immature. And so they had no idea what Jesus was talking about. I don't even think, I, I feel like I'm pretty spiritually mature, but I didn't. I wouldn't have even made that connection where they're not an explanation. But Jesus is talking about himself. He gives them a, a window, a peek in, a preview into his future. And what Jesus knows and what did eventually happen is Jesus' defiance and Jesus' troublemaking would eventually cost him his life. Like Jesus wasn't afraid to speak out. He wasn't afraid to get into the fray. And even though, you know, it was planned from the beginning of the world, God's salvation was God's redemption plan, Jesus was killed by his enemies because he was getting into so much good trouble. He was hanging out with folks that you weren't supposed to hang out with. He was healing on days you weren't supposed to heal. He was speaking up for folks who didn't, who, 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 who for good reason in the broken society did not have a voice and he got himself into trouble. They killed him. They took his life, but they didn't know what they were doing. Because on the third day, Jesus rose again. And so I'm so glad that that's in there because so much of Jesus' troublemaking was tied to his purpose. And you know, if you come around here, we talk a lot about purpose. 
Because everything we do is tied to purpose. Otherwise, life is aimless. It's, it's meaningless, right? It's a shot in the dark. But if we start with purpose, if we start with who am I, and let that who am I inform how I walk out the left foot, right foot reality of my life, if we, like Christ, understand that we are put here to extend and to usher in the kingdom of God, which has a major justice component, we decide from the outset that that's who we are, then to, to play it safe in life, and to be cowardly, to lie low and to go with the current and go with the grain of life is simply not living out who we've been called to be. It's not who we've been called to be. We've been called to be salt and light. And the only way you know if you have enough salt on something is you taste it. The only way you know if, 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 if light is present someplace is if the darkness scatters. And some of us are flavorless salt. And some of us are lights under a basket because we've upset nothing around us. We're as closeted as we can be. And in our particular political and religious context, most of us are like that, and so we feel like we're in good company. But when we look at the life and ministry of Jesus, he got into trouble. He was other. He was different. He stood for something. He wasn't afraid of getting into good trouble. Have you decided, friends, that it's your mission? It is your purpose to get into trouble, to push against the grain of life as we know it. And let me just tell you, um, without being unduly political, in this political climate that we live in right now, where much of the evangelical church has been compromised, um, it's going to be more important than ever to stand up and be counted. I'm not talking about voting a certain way and you know, electing a certain person. I think that get really wacky, and we, we're just not that kind of church. But we are a kingdom of God people. And I don't care who is sitting on the throne of the United States of America, we will judge on the basis of the scriptures. We will judge on the basis of what's important to God. And I don't care who's in the White House we will see it the way that God sees it. We will regard humans, particularly the people that God leans toward, the orphans, the widows, the stranger, the children. We will act in their interest. We will speak on their behalf. We will advocate for them because that's what Jesus did. And when we find somebody who's under the boot of life, we are to lift the boot, even if it might do us harm. Because this is who we are. This is what Jesus did. This is, in essence, to continue the ministry of Jesus, to get into the fray, to run toward the fight, to stand up and be counted, to be salt, to be light, 
to get into good trouble. Worship team, you can come up as I close. What's the big picture here? Big picture is this. I think God is challenging all of us to get into some good trouble this week. And because what a sermon's like this is supposed to awaken you to is the reality of what's going on around you. You don't have to travel anywhere to see exploitation. You don't have to travel anyplace to discover this. I just, just turn on the TV, just go on social media, just like go outside, right? And so the challenge for us is, is, is we, again, we have been rocked to sleep by an apathetic, self-centered culture. And there are things around us, things that we behold every day that are supposed to send us into a fighting mad, like righteous anger stance, but we've gotten comfortable with it. We got used to injustice. We got used to exploitation. We got used to racism and bigotry and homophobia. We gotten used to it. And the thing that we behold is supposed to turn our stomach, make us tear our shirts and scream in righteous anger, we just turn the page or we scroll. Or we say, that's none of my business. And I believe that God, in a way that's specific to where you live, where you work, or where you go to school, is calling us, all of us this week, in some measurable way to get into some good trouble to move from apathetic and apathy and indifference and to have as Christ did a thoroughly converted kingdom mind and some of us are apathetic or indifferent we're not flavored salt because we just need God to open our eyes and awaken our eyes to see things all around us others of us though lack of courage I can't tell you as we lead uh, the, the, our national movement, many of you don't know, but this, we, we're one vineyard church of six, about 650 congregations in the United States, and I've been fortunate to lead on a national level our, our movement's push into diversity, uh, racial reconciliation, and a push toward championing the multi-ethnic church like the likes of what we enjoy here. And I can't tell you how many people text me and inbox me, especially as I post things that our desire to create some conversation and bring awareness to things. They say, you know, you're so right. I'm so convicted by this. I want to comment, but I know my family's going to jump all over me. I, I'm, I'm, I, you're right. God has been moving in my heart, but I just know if I say something, this one's going to say this, and this is going to say that, and people at my job, I get all the time. For the really courageous ones, they say, Gina, would you, would you help me to fashion a response? Would you help me to, is it okay? Like, is your page a safe space where I can, you know, come and, and out myself as a kingdom person who loves justice? And can I be humbly ignorant in your space? And if you follow me on social media, I'm regularly running off people who come and want to, you know, don't do that on my page. This is a safe space because there are people who are taking their first courageous steps. And some of my family members, I say, do not come on my page with that. This is a civil space because people are learning. They're taking their first courageous steps. And some of us lack courage. And maybe social media is not your platform. Maybe you're called to speak up to your Uncle Jimmy when he says something racist at the, at the dinner table. Or push back. 
your father or somebody who you care about their opinion of you. I, I can't prescribe to you what you should do, but some of you, even now as I speak, you know areas where you need to grow in courage and stand out and be salt and light. I don't want to prescribe what for you to do, but I feel like the Spirit of God is even quickening you as I speak the areas that you need to grow in courage and the places and spaces where you need to get into good trouble. We'll explore this subject further in the weeks to come. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word and your truth. Thank you for your example. The threat of death was not even enough, Lord, to get you off a mission and purpose. Father, would you move us to a place where it cost us something again to follow you? Help us to put some skin into this game. Help us to be willing to suffer a loss of reputation or a loss of comfort but upset some people for your kingdom. Call. Lord, help us to get into good trouble. For those of us who lack courage, others of us are humbly ignorant, others of us lack wisdom. Father, your word says that if we lack wisdom, all we have to do is ask. Pour out your spirit. Pour out your power and love. Do what only you can do. Help us to get in trouble this week. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen.